0: of the Rainbow Pridecast, our guest, Dr. Dana Beyer, shares a wealth of information in regards to endocrine disruptors, trans and intersex people, as well as other reproduction issues. She discusses her own role in marriage and gender equality in Maryland, as well as her own experiences through the years in equality and advocacy. If you'd like to learn more about the issues Dr. Beyer discusses on the Pridecast, we've compiled a lengthy list of resources on our Pridecast website at www.rainbowpridecast.com. Just find the episode icon for episode 25, Dr. Dana Beyer, and click on Learn More for the resource list. Welcome to episode 25 of the Rainbow Pridecast. I'm your host, Danielle Dupuy, and I use the pronouns she, her, hers. Co-hosting with me today is Gabriel Porter.
1: Hello, I'm Gabriel Porter. I use the pronouns he, him, and his, and I'm excited to be here.
0: And today we are joined by Dr. Dana Beyer, a transgender rights activist and the executive director of Gender Rights Maryland. Welcome to the Pridecast, Dr. Beyer.
2: Thank you very much, Danielle and Gabe.
0: Um, we're excited to have you here and um, learn a little bit about you and from you. Um, now, you uh, are a retired physician?
2: Yes, and surgeon.
0: And surgeon. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Uh, so I attended medical school back in uh, antediluvian times, back in the, back in the 70s. When we were fighting for relevancy, my class at the time was 24% female, which was very unusual. I think it was the highest percentage of women in a medical school class in America at the time. Today, the national average is 54% women, just to show you how much has changed over that period of time. And, yeah. uh that, that medicine had been my focus since I was, I believe, eight years old. My parents bought me a microscope and a chemistry set. And I, I was really a science geek back before we even had words for it. I guess nerd was more like it than geek. Uh, it was only in the 80s with the development of the personal computer that geeks, Sort of were elevated in society's perception. It was okay to be a geek, but in my days it really wasn't. But I was one of them. I went to the Bronx High School of Science, which sort of solidified my my role in, in geekiness. And uh, but I always wanted to be a doctor, and so I went to medical school. And probably the most exciting experiences that I had in medicine were included uh, two years spent abroad. Until six years ago, the Peace Corps did not have a medical arm. So you Hmm. could not sign up for the Peace Corps and practice medicine. But I I did the next best thing. And I signed up with a program in a Quaker hospital in Kenya, right next door to a, a Peace Corps group that was working on irrigation and and things like that. So it was my way of joining the Peace Corps, which was something I always wanted to do. Again, a child of the 60s, the Peace Corps was the thing. And if you talk to a lot of people today in their 60s and 70s, they'll tell you that those experiences were very important parts of their lives. And those were days when we believed in public service, and it's been downhill ever since. We need to get back to that different Mm -hmm. issue. So I worked in... uh, Northwest Kenya, in what turned out to be the president's father's tribal homeland, near, near Lake Victoria, near the Ugandan border. And at that time, so I learned how to speak Luo, which is a dialect of Kiswahili. And when I met President Obama for the first time in 2009, I, and I introduced myself, I spoke to him in Luo. And I completely floored him because it was the last thing in the world he expected to hear. So it was sort of, it laid the groundwork for a really good relationship. And I, I would talk to Michelle about it at, at some events that we had over the years. And it's pretty funny because I went there as an LGBT activist at the time. And here I am speaking Luo and talking about you know his, his father's native land. But I, I spend my time there dealing with refugees from Uganda. Idi Amin had been on a killing spree. And uh, they used to stream across the border, used to row across the lake, and I, I would have to treat these victims who had, you know, war wounds and the like, burns and all the rest of the things that I had barely seen back mm-hmm. home because, well, you know, we're not, we weren't caught up in a civil war. And so this was an opportunity to actually get out to live in a different culture, to meet people, to live with them, and to offer my services where they were greatly needed. After I chose to go into ophthalmology and got my uh, certification in ophthalmology, I took another year off and I went to work in a mountain hospital, not much of a hospital really, just sort of a log cabin in western Nepal. And I performed surgery on Nepalese who had come down from the mountains who were almost completely blind at that time. You might have seen photos of people. There are are a number of blinding eye diseases globally, uh, onchocerciasis and and others, but oftentimes people up there in the mountains, because they're out most of the time and the sunlight is, is much brighter than it is down here on, you know, down at sea level and such, get exposed to that. And they develop cataracts at an earlier age and because they don't have any routine healthcare, these people's cataracts would develop to the point where they couldn't see anything at all. So they really were in need. This was again back in the early 80s, of having somebody to come and do surgery. So I performed surgery on them with very primitive tools. My ex and I, you know, lived in our own cabin. People came down. They were the blind leading the blind. I'm sure you've heard of that phrase and you can mm-hmm. look online of photos of the of trains of people walking with you know, one hand on the shoulder in front of them and going on and on and on, and there's only the only sighted person in that group would be the person at the front. And these people came all the way down from altitudes of you know, 15,000, 18,000 feet in order to get their, their surgery done. And the pleasure that they had, even without the kind of corrections that we would do here with artificial lens implants and such, which had just come into usage when I was training in the late 70s, These people were absolutely thrilled. And that's the kind of satisfaction. When you see that kind of satisfaction as a practitioner, it makes all the years and all the hours and all the nights on call worthwhile to be able to provide that kind of care to really change people's lives. So that was my medical experience. I went into practice and all Mm -hmm. the rest, but, uh, the other thing, and then this is this may take you someplace where you don't want to go, we can cut it short if you want, but uh, you had mentioned earlier before we we started this that you had listened to uh, an interview I had done back uh, nine years ago about endocrine disruptors. And my life has been overdetermined by endocrine disruptors, one in particular called DES or diethylstilbestrol, which was used back beginning in the late 40s. It was created in 1948 and used throughout the 50s and the 60s in the vain hope of preventing miscarriage. Now, looking at that from today, you wonder why in the world would anybody go to such trouble about that? We now know today miscarriage happens naturally in 30 to 40% of cases of pregnancy. That's the way it's supposed to happen. It's nature's way of you know, removing defective fetuses from the system and this is normal. But after the war, when the guys finally came back from Europe and the Pacific and such, People were really eager to get started on families, and then if you were a woman who miscarried, it was much more of an emotional experience than it would be today where we know better. And so these this Harvard uh, husband wife pair uh, back in 1948 created this superestrogen called DES, which was believed to prevent or reduce the risk of mis- miscarriage. And my mother, miscarried her first pregnancy my older brother back in 1950 and so when she got pregnant the second time with me she went to her doctor who thought this was the greatest thing since sliced bread and sliced bread was relatively new back in those days so that was a thing and took it but it turned out the study had not been done this hadn't been tested the whole testing regimen thing that we take for granted today wasn't in place you know all of the informed consents and all of that didn't exist back in the uh, mid 20th century and so it was proven in 1953 that this did not work it didn't reduce the risk of miscarriage at all but we continued to use it for another 20 years anyway which was a, a, a terrific shame and a and a, a scar on American medicine and pharmaceutical industry, and there are many. This was one of them, and it was only banned by the FDA in 1971 when there was a cluster of uh, vaginal adenocarcinomas in a group of young women in the Boston area. And then the epidemiologists, which is what the CDC does best or used to do best, went to work and discovered that it was all related to DES, and they banned it we continued shipping it abroad for the next 25 years because that's what we do. But it stopped being used in the U.S. at that point. The problem with DES being a super estrogen, which would cross the placental barrier, which was the point at the time, and in a hope of preventing miscarriages, but also across the blood-brain barrier of a developing embryo and fetus, was that as a super estrogen, it was a potent hormone, and it, there's a whole list, you can look it up easily, of all the complications that result from treatment with this super estrogen, which is about 10,000 times more concentrated than your typical estrogen that the average woman has circulating in her bloodstream. And it, it would cause infertility, all sorts of abnormalities in the reproductive systems. It caused depression, sometimes psychosis, autoimmune diseases. Uh, and this, this was just in the women. Breast cancer risk went up significantly. My mother had two instances of breast breast cancer in her lifetime. Mm-hmm. And we also discovered, because this was my first internet political activist experience, we set up uh, a group called the DES International Sons Listserv. And so this was for people who were assigned male at birth, whose mothers had taken DES. There were a couple of cases of brain cancer that were related to this, but we figured there was more to it than that. All the attention was on the females and the infertility and the tumors and such, which was justifiable. And we we didn't argue with that, but all the people who were assigned male were ignored. And so we got together and we talked about these things. And then one day, uh, after a couple of years of this, I decided to come out. I hadn't come out to anybody but my exes and my parents at that point. So this was in 1999 or 2000. On the list, I decided to come out and say that I was trans, because I've known that since I was seven years old. And that opened a floodgate. And all of a sudden, all of these quote-unquote guys who were part of this listserv, and there there were over 500, the story started flowing. So we did studies and we went out because we had not, this was not uh, a requirement. This wasn't the listserv for trans identified DES, you know, men or anything like that. This was just the DES Sons listserv for people to talk about their experiences and the rest. But nobody would go into the realm of sexuality because, you know, we're, we're Americans, So we're either hypersexual or we're prudish. And in this case, people were prudish. They weren't going to out themselves as being trans or anything like that. Oh, and by the way, DES does increase the risk of being gay as well. So, and that was known and that was accepted in the medical community back in the 1990s. But the trans thing wasn't. So we did studies online and we proved that DES causes transsexualism. So that was my first foray into LGBT politics, but from the medical side. And that's what I basically made my career on. My, my activism is based in science. Now, I understand that not everybody cares about that. For some people, it's not relevant. Some people don't have the background to make sense of it. But I use that to lobby, to advocate, to educate people at various levels, whether it was on the very local level here in Montgomery County, when I worked on the county council, for four years back in the aughts or on the state level where I worked for 15 years lobbying on both public health, as you heard on that broadcast, but also on trans and gay issues, but also on the national level and on the global level. And I used my expertise as a physician. I had studied human sexual development for 50 years because, oh, it was relevant to me and I I wanted to know why I was how I was. Long before I came out, that was really... The only way I can scratch that itch, so to speak, try to find out why I felt the way I did. And eventually, early on, I, my mother would told me that she had taken DES and I went, oh, okay, let me look into that. And the pieces started coming together. And then when I met a, a biologist who was the expert in DES effect on, uh, on mammals, on rodents primarily, because that's where we do our research in guinea pigs and rats and stuff, and I told him my story. I had menstruated when I was 12, which uh, you know is not a pretty typical thing for "quote unquote" boys to do. Uh, I told him that story, and he goes, "Well, it's pretty obvious why that happened." And he showed me, you know, his research on this and on the uteri that these "quote unquote" male mice would have who had been exposed to DES, and a lot of those mice behaved like females and they menstruated like females. So it's it's an interesting story. And it was one of those moments where I went, wow, okay, now I understand. That experience of menstruating through my urethra almost killed me. It caused renal failure, sepsis. I uh, suffered cardiac arrest. I'm lucky that I I survived that. But it was a pretty horrendous experience. And my first success in medical advocacy was in getting the American Academy of Pediatrics to recognize that when boys, quote unquote, present at puberty with bloody urination, that the first thing they need to think about is some sort of reproductive abnormality, such as I had. Because when I had that with that presentation, none of the urologists at the time had any clue of what it could be. So, they tortured me for six months with various treatments trying to stop the bleeding, but they had no idea what was going on. And in those days, we had very few imaging techniques. We had plain x-rays. We didn't have fancy ones. We didn't have CT scans or MRIs or sonograms or anything like that. So, I was really in trouble. And did, they, of... did
0: they actually come to a conclusion at that point? No, did they,
2: they did not. They never were able. That's why when I, I was speaking to the, the researcher about this, it was like, oh my God. That's what happened. And I told them, I said, they didn't have a clue. They're just glad that I didn't die. I I had to be taken to emergency surgery and I had last rites performed on me. This was in a Catholic hospital. My parents were freaked out. Not that I was going to die, but that I had last rites performed, which was not exactly appropriate for a little Jewish kid. So uh, we would laugh about that later on. But at the time it really, really freaked them out. And then when I was recovering and they would apologize to me for being in a Catholic hospital, I mean it wasn't exactly the number one concern of mine. I was on <laughs> venous antibiotics for three weeks and I felt terrible and I, you know, was still bleeding while urinating and the pain was intense. And, and so I, I I can relate to what childbirth is like, unlike you know, most other people who were raised as men. And uh, I remember telling my mother, I said, look, don't worry. My cousin Jesus saved my life here. You don't have to, you know, get all, all worked up about that. And yeah, it was a horrendous experience. But and it, it's funny how these things happen. So I rarely talk about that. This is the first time in a very long time I'm talking about that incident. Because when I became a trans activist, throwing that kind of intersex experience into it would simply confuse the issue. As I told you before, a lot of people aren't interested in the science. They don't know the biology. We don't teach it well enough. Even in medical school, we don't really talk about these issues. Certainly only recently. I mean, I've been teaching trans health at Georgetown Med since uh, 2008 or 9, I think. I mean, it's a relatively new thing. But even the intersex conditions, which we've known about for thousands of years, actually, Really get talked about because sex freaks people out. So I would rarely talk about these, but I was on a, uh, I think it was about four years ago, I was on a CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Company, uh, radio program uh, with a cis feminist activist.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: this was back in the days of uh, bathroom bills and such. I mean, today people go after trans people in sports, but the bathroom is not an issue. I think we've put that to rest for the most part. And You know, she was very respectful. I was respectful to her. And we were talking back and forth. The moderator was very good at elucidating, you know, these issues. And she said, well, you know, I I accept the fact that you're a woman. But, you know, you're, you're really not a woman like me or other women like me. You simply don't have the experiences that we had. You know, when you don't go through menarche, you know, at age 11 or 12 or something like that, you're not really a woman. And then I had to explain to her that, well, actually, I did go through that when I was 12, and I did it through my urethra. So it was a hell of a lot more painful and scary than it was for you doing it in a natural manner. Now, I understand because I have friends who've been through all this, and I'm a doctor too. So I've seen it as a physician that, yeah, it's scary when you get your first, when you're a girl and you get your first period. But it's a hell of a lot scarier when you start bleeding through your urethra. And you know that you're a girl and you're hoping that you're having your period, but you know, that's kind of weird because boys, quote unquote, don't have periods and it's coming out with your urine and such. And so this is all really weird. And you're only 12. And so you don't know anything. You don't have any background in science. And she went, oh my, oh, I am so sorry. And we became friends after that because she had no clue. And this is part of the problem. We don't talk to one another a lot particularly today, because if you speak out of school, so to speak, and you say anything that's at all outside of the, the constraints of your group's particular dogma, you basically get kicked out. Cancel is the word we use today, but there have been other words that have been used throughout history, and you, the only place you really have to go is you either go and hide in a corner or you get kicked over to the other side, which is not where you want to be. I mean, Nazis don't want to be kicked out and to join Antifa, right? And those of us who are progressives and liberals don't want to be kicked out and have to be lumped together with Richard Spencer. So this is a problem. But on that discussion, we actually, you know, came to an understanding that, yeah, being a woman, like being a man, is a complicated, complex, you know, developmental issue for everybody. And yes. The vast majority of women are cis and they go through this. But, you know, I, I did my gynecology uh, rotations and there were a bunch of women who never had a period. Mm-hmm. There are some women who don't have uteri. There are those women who are exposed to DES that have very bizarre looking uteri and can't, you know, hold on to a, uh, an embryo. I mean, there, there are lots of complications here. And we just have this attitude that we assume everybody fits into a category, whatever it may be, and that's the end of it. And it really isn't, which is why we need to be able to engage with people and have those discussions. And that one talk taught me a lesson that I didn't expect that to happen. I expected it to be confrontational. But when I mentioned that to her and she went, oh, okay, you know, I'm a professor, I'm an intellectual, I have to listen to this. That's the kind of response we need to have in trying to Help people understand because we're, we can't demand our way to equality and liberty. We have to go out and explain it and persuade people because that's the way this country works when it works. And when we don't do that, it doesn't work well and we're at each other's throats. And I, I hope we can get back to that in the future. So but anyway, getting back to where we started, I have been an advocate based on my stature as a physician, as a surgeon. As a, as a scientist and such and i've promoted trans rights and gay rights primarily as a scientist so that's i'm a, I'm a bit different from most activists out there i'm not the only doctor when uh so fun little story which a uh, great experience that i had in 2004 uh, a group of directors out in hollywood decided to uh put on the vagina monologues, which was a, a thing back in those days. It's not so much a thing anymore. But put on the vagina monologues at the Blue Whale in West Hollywood with hundreds of people in attendance. But it was the first all trans woman uh, vagina monologue production. And I was fortunate to be a part of that. Many of those women are, have been my friends ever since. And there were three of us were physicians. and uh, We were the first ones out on stage. And we we gave sort of the medical introduction to it, but so there were three trans physicians, uh, and it was it was an interesting experience. But different people have different life experiences, and they can bring different perspectives to all of these issues that are necessary. If you just limit it to one narrow field, you know you end up not having as an enriching an experience because you're just too narrow casted, so to speak.
0: So there are a couple of things um, I was thinking as you were, um, you were talking and um, also based on our conversation that we had earlier this week on Monday, um, you know, when I um, think of my own physician, um, you know, somebody that I go and I see when I'm sick, maybe they have written a couple of papers or article in a journal that they might have display on display in their office. Um, but I mean, you have such a long list of accomplishments and you have such a, um, a variety of different experiences I feel have brought all of this together. Um, and have you ever read the book, um, by Malcolm Gladwell called outliers? Yes. It kind of reminds me a little bit about like, you could be a story in that book in that, um, you know, how you started the, um, uh, you know, on the, the DES exposure on women and kind of started that, that listserv of those um, people presenting as male and kind of sharing those stories, how you would have never even gotten to that point if you didn't have these experience and happened to be in the right place at the right time, talking to the right people. And then lo and behold, you've kind of uncovered, you know, made this discovery um, and done this research. And then that kind of prompted that research, but then also um, How you then kind of use that, and you've, um, you know, from done the uh, been a vice president for quality Maryland, you've been on the national chair, the board of advisors of the Freedom to Work, you started your own nonprofit for Gender Rights Maryland. I mean, you were on the board of Maryland NARAL. I mean, you brought about help bring about marriage equality in Maryland. I mean, it's it's insane. Like your list of accomplishments, like you just, it's like, you just kind of kept going like, okay, I see an issue here. I see a problem. I need to, you know, I need to be present. I need to be a voice. I need to advocate for these people because as you were just pointing out, people don't know. Um, and people are afraid to ask. They're afraid to talk about it. Um, and, uh, you know, I really appreciate that about you. Um, and I also appreciate the fact that you are, continue to kind of, to continue to read on the, on the topics. I feel like a lot of times people get into a particular career path and they're like, Oh, well, I'm here. I don't need to research this anymore. I kind of got to my goal and this is like what I want to do with my life. Right. And um talking to you on Monday about kind of like the current state of our. Um, of <laughs> Give me more information in five minutes in such a concise way than I've heard people actually talk about for like the last seven months. I feel like we've been put in circles and I'm like, holy crap, you should just be on TV and like tell people about this stuff because it makes sense. Um, Thank so- you. I, mean, I,
2: I could do that, but I will say that there are many people out there on TV, particularly, say, on MSNBC and CNN, who have the credentials in public health that I don't have. I've just so as an example, I would say and I I hope Gabriel takes this seriously, this is the value of a liberal arts education. And I think this is important for the future of America too, because I don't think we take this very seriously. Now, there have been reasons we've been pushing STEM studies and all the rest, try to catch up with the Chinese and all. There there are plenty of changes that need to be made, but there is a value to a liberal education. And I've thought about that Gladwell book and that and Outliers. I've also thought about, and I've taken to heart because I, I actually calculated this once, in another one of his books, he talked about how it takes 10,000 hours to master something. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. You, know, you just can't it. You don't just, you know, sort of get up there and, you know, can throw a football six, 60 yards, you know, into somebody's arms or to hit a hundred mile an hour baseball, whatever it is, or play a piano or anything else. And I went back and I calculated how many hours it took me to become a physician and how many hours it took me to become a surgeon and then how many hours it took me to become a a lobbyist, an advocate, and how many hours it took me to become a politician and stuff. And you know what? He's about right on that. He popularized that number. He wasn't the first to do so. But it takes about 10,000 hours of intense work to do it. Now, you're not always working intensively during those 10,000 hours, but you're engaged. You're showing up. And it just, everything sort of comes together. And that's the value of a liberal education. Nothing that I studied back well, here's another example. So I'm an advocate for marriage equality in Maryland back in the mid-aughts. And the opponents are generally religious individuals, evangelicals, fundamentalists and such. And they're throwing quotes out right and left. Now, when I was a child, I went to a school called the Yeshiva, which is a Jewish day school. And I had a very intensive education in Torah, Bible, Talmud, all these things. And I would read about other religions as well. I did comparative religion in my spare time and all of that. So when it came time to engage as an activist, as an advocate for marriage equality, going up against religious folks who wanted to stop that, I could meet them on their playing field. I could respond to their questions, their issues, their demands based on their reading of their scripture. They didn't like it when they saw me coming. They would put the mark of a cross up in front of me and laugh and say, oh, God, you know, here she comes, Rabbi Byer." And, uh, you know, it was very helpful. I got some people to listen to me because I could speak their language. And most people could not do that. If you were secular, you've got a real barrier between secular folks who know nothing about religions and religious folks who really don't care about the secular stuff and and that includes science as well so you've got a real barrier there there's a huge chasm chasm to cross and you got to be able to bridge that and i was able to do that and it was just one of those things that i started doing it with a <clears throat> with a colleague heather Mazier, who was also well-versed she's catholic and so she she knew more of the catholic stuff she ran for governor in 2014. I don't know if you remember that. But, you know, Heather would bring me into some of these meetings and I, w- I would then sort of say, OK, go ahead, Dana, start talking. And it was like, yeah, I could do that. Most people couldn't do that because they didn't have my background. So that's the value of my elementary school and junior high school education, that I had that stuff and I had kept up with it enough You were right. You pointed out that some people get into their professions and that's it. They just sort of get locked down on that. And my best friend from high school who went on to become a a cardiologist and a a very good one, I remember going to visit him in his home like 10 years after he got into practice and there were hardly any books on the shelf. And I was wondering, I said, Mike, you know, why, you know, where are all the books? Aren't you reading? He goes, I don't have any time to do any of that. It's all journal stuff. And I know how much work you have to put in to be at the top of your field. And I'm doing that now, as you mentioned, on this epidemiology and stuff, since I'm stuck at home. And all this stuff is put online and it's all pre-printed, It's not peer reviewed. You don't have to wait the way we used to have to wait. It's all out there. There are tens of thousands of papers on this virus that are out there. And I have people who sort of curate that for me and for the rest of us, if you know where to look. And I then go ahead and I read the papers. And that's why I was able to tell you to scare the hell out of you in five minutes when most people don't know where to look and they're dependent on what the Washington Post says or something. And that's not bad, but it's not as intensive as what a scientist or a physician could give you by being able to go online and knowing where to look. So, yeah, I think a liberal education is very important. A scientific education is very important. Uh, my religious education turned out to be very important because this is a lot of people here are religious or claim to be, and they come at things from a certain perspective. And if you have experience with that, you can talk to them. You may not win them over, but you're certainly not going to win them over if you're speaking a completely different language, which is often what happens on these issues. And this kind of conflict between religious freedom and equality in America is not long-standing problem, and it will continue to be one as long as we have a republic, hopefully beyond next week, where these clashes are inevitable. They're built into the system. Unless the system changes, these clashes are going to continue because you have two primary, you know, going back to the Declaration, which is our origination document, there's liberty and there's equality. And those two are always in conflict on some level. And my goal as an advocate was simply to, first off, to change the world's perception of trans people so that children did not have to go through the misery I went through as a child when I didn't know what was going on and I was scared to death and none of it made any sense to me. And I ended up getting punished and you know, sent to my room and all of that when I would talk about it. And I didn't understand you know, what was going on, really. It took me until basically I got into into high school before I could find my way through the stacks at college libraries and stuff and try and get a sense of, you know, who I was. But I don't want children have to go through that. We make great, great progress on that now. That's probably the most satisfying thing to me. When I was seven, my parents threatened to take me to the local the medical center, and to be institutionalized. And I remember going back home to visit back in the early 90s, and that medical center had a gender identity program at that point. And I went, wow, you know, that's pretty cool. And we've gone from from a handful to dozens across the country. And there are thousands of therapists now who are training in sexuality, which they never had before. And I'm very, very satisfied of having played a small role in all of that. So yeah, you know, and you never know. And that's the other thing about it. You never know what where your journey is going to take you. And you never know when something you learned 20, 30, 50, 60 years ago is going to come in handy. And if you keep an open mind and you read wild, widely and you travel and you meet people from other, you know, circumstances, other cultures, you know, you're open to things that people who are really narrow-minded in in every sense of the word simply can't do. Uh, Mm -hmm. The the phrase was uh, chance favors the prepared mind. You have to have a mind that's open to the randomness, to the chance that happens in the world in order to be able to notice things that you might then be able to use. And oftentimes you can't, but if you keep an open mind to it, Things sort of happen and the world evolves and maybe you can find a role in it. And I've been fortunate to be able to use my religious training, my medical training, my scientific training to then become politically active to help create a world where trans people have their rights in the United States of America. And that's an important thing. I'm very proud of that. And I'm glad that everything sort of worked out, like you mentioned that outliers book. And I thought about that, too, because I was of an age Where I could easily, had I been, my father was a computer programmer and a systems analyst, so I could have easily gone into that, gone that direction, the way Bill Gates and Steve Jobs did in the mid 70s, working in my garage, you know, with a personal computer, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I, as I mentioned, I had a microscope, I had a chemistry lab, I had all sorts of things in my basement, so I could have gone in that direction. And those guys were in the right place; they were the right people in the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. So similarly, I had that experience myself. I didn't go that direction because I wanted to be a doctor, but that just shows you the different branches that you know. Every second, you know, the world branches out. Whether you want to you believe in the multiverse, you know, theory of uh, multiple universes and all that, or not. But the point is, you you follow a path and you make decisions every day, and decisions are made for you, and you you follow them and you try to make the most of them and use the skills that you have in a way that others can't to improve things, because you know. Hillary was right about a lot of things, as we've learned over the last four years, but she was particularly right that it does take a village and it takes a village in advocacy, too. It's not just one person with one identity, with one life experience who can represent a lot of people, who can influence individuals, certain people can influence others, certain other folks have to present things in a different way in order to have an impact. It takes a lot of people to do that. It's not just something that happens. There was a, an experience we had when we were working on the gender identity bill in Annapolis, where uh, one of our colleagues, one of our trans colleagues, you know, was very smart and very articulate. And she said, oh, you know, I don't know why this is so hard. I'm going to go in there and I've got my three minutes and I'm going to convince this committee, you know, to pass this bill. And after she came out, she came over to me and she said, you know, I think you were right. This isn't as easy as it seems. You know, it's this stuff is complicated. And to be able to understand we don't teach civics anymore. So most Americans don't know how complicated it is and they don't know how a bill becomes law and they don't understand why, you know, their benefits have not been extended by Mitch McConnell now as they're, they're struggling to make ends meet and getting evicted and all those things. You really need to understand that. But it takes time. It takes a lot of hours to understand that. And the more experience you have in doing it and being out there and engaging with people on this, the better you understand it and the more likely you are to be able to find a way to make it work, which is why experience in government really does help. You know, maybe you don't need 47 years of experience in it, but, you know, a little bit of it really does go a long way. And spending time, if you really want to change policy in the country, spending time as a staffer, you know, on in any at any governmental level is, is would be really worth your while because you get to see from the inside, you know, how the sausage is made. And it's not as simple as people sitting at home watching Fox News believe it is. So,
1: so I remember you saying that, you've been part of the LGBTQ community since you were seven years old, right?
2: Well, I, I mean, yeah, I guess, uh, well, I, I've been a member, an unknowing member of the community since uh, six weeks post-conception when my mother took the DES. But, I, you know, that's that's cute to say that. I certainly didn't know who I was or what I was at seven in 1959. So, you know, the, the first trans person that was known in America was Christine Jorgensen when she came home from from Denmark from her genital reconstruction surgery in December of nineteen fifty two, which was nine months after my birth. And you know, she was a popular figure. She was on the Tonight Show frequently and such. So America knew what a trans woman was, but that was about it. I, I had no idea, really how to define myself until 1966 when Hopkins started doing its own general reconstruction program and had developed its gender identity clinic. And that was headline news. That was in Time and Newsweek and and the like. And when I saw that, it was like, whoa, that even made it into the teen magazines of the day, which just shows you how prevalent it was that news was in society and how Again, we're a very hypersexual society and we're also a very prudish society. So it, it filtered down into teen magazines, and I, I saw it both in the teen magazines my girlfriends were reading and in Time and Newsweek, which my parents received. So I suppose I became aware that I fit that. But look, Gabe, there, there was no LGBTQ community. Q didn't exist except as an epithet until very recently. Uh, The only community that was out there of any note was the gay community. I think I mentioned this last time. Frank Kameny, who was an activist here in D.C. who died a few years ago, was the guy who coined the phrase gay is good. He's the one who was fired by the uh, State Department in 1957, I believe it was the State Department. He was an astronomer and he was fired for being gay back in the day when that was considered to be a security risk. And so there was only a gay community. And when Stonewall happened, it was still only really a gay male community. Women were not a part of that. The misogyny amongst gay males was profound. And bi people sort of didn't exist because they had one foot in one side and one foot in the other. So that was too confusing to the narrative. And so they they weren't really considered trans people. I mean, there were just a handful of us who were out at that point. We didn't amount to anything. I mean, even now, our percentage of the population is only 0.6%. I mean, that's, that's tiny, really. So what uh, wasn't part of that community? I was out inadvertently in Greenwich Village the night of Stonewall going to the Village Vanguard with my girlfriend, whom I had met six days earlier. So that's, again, how bizarre the world is with its random workings and maybe there's an entanglement here that we don't know about, but I happened to be there and I was both attracted and repelled by the scenes that were going on because I I wanted to be a part of it because I knew I was a part of that crowd on an instinctive level, but I also didn't want my girlfriend to know or to sense that there was something about me that I hadn't told her yet. I didn't tell her for another year. And so, you know, I was torn that night, but there wasn't an LGBT community. There was an, the the gay community only accepted women to any significant degree in the nineties when a lot of the men had died from AIDS and the lesbians were the ones who would nursed them through that. And so women rose into the community's leadership in the nineties. The bi has always been pretty invisible and the T, we forced ourselves into the community. We appended the T to LGB in 2004 when we demonstrated against HRC downtown here in DC and uh, forced our way onto the scene. And then we had the blow up over the Employment Non Discrimination Act in 2007. And that basically made the T a part of the LGBT community. But There are some people who've never been comfortable with it. I understand why, because sexual orientation and gender identity, which is really sexual identity, are not the same things. They're two independent brain functions. And, you know, you can be cis and gay or trans and gay or cis and straight and trans and straight or whatever. All You can mix mix and match all of these identities and behaviors, and it confuses a lot of people. And so... It hasn't been an easy journey, but when you look back at it, it's been 51 years since Stonewall and 63 years since Frank Kameny boycotting out in front of the White House. It's been a remarkable, remarkably successful experience as far as you I may mean, just look at the you know the racism that still exists the misogyny that still exists the you know the gay and trans communities have made incredible progress over the past 50 60 years and it's something to be very proud of and I, I think the other civil rights movements should learn from what the LGBT community has gone through so there you have it I, again I didn't know awareness is, you know it's a very individual thing. Most trans people know that they are different at an early age, but not all. And some come to an awareness. Today it's much easier. You just go online and you can figure out who you are pretty quickly. But back in the fifties and the sixties, there was no way to do that. So
1: yeah, so I um I think what stuck to me was um you said that um gay was more um towards men and not really thought of towards women.
2: Yeah, that's that goes back. That goes back a it's interesting. As I was on a call yesterday about uh, LGBT and the law, both in the US and in Israel. And the guy who was presenting on the US was presenting it almost completely from a gay male perspective because he's a gay male and these that's his legal practice and all the rest. And I remember even back in the aughts, so we're talking fifteen 13 14 15 years ago there was talk of pushing marriage equality only for women and the reason for that is the you know the the disapproval the disgust that people felt about gay relationships which was primarily about gay sex and the the great achievement of the gay rights movement was to shift people away from sex to dignity to lives, to people being whole human beings, getting it away from the sex act, which they apply to trans people too. When I was first advocating, it was always about how do you have sex? With whom do you have sex? This and that. And I go, no, sex is about biology. It's about more than that. It's how your brain functions, etc. And everybody would always get back to, well, who do you have, with whom are you having intimate relations? And I go, it's not about that. I'll get to that because I'm a human being and trans people are human and we have intimate relations, but that's not what being trans is about. So it took a long time to educate people about that. And they were really, really averse to listening to it from that perspective. And that's been probably, that was the greatest challenge. And when we were talking about marriage equality, we would say, well, you know, guys think two women having sex is cool. So why don't we sort of use that? And well, let's do female marriage equality first, and then we can go to the male. But this goes back much further. The religious, in this case in America, the Christian, you know, denigration of gay male relationships derives from the Hebrew Bible, from Leviticus, where it says a man shall not lie with a man as a woman. And it's only about men. Throughout Jewish history, the admonition was against gay male sex. And it actually wasn't against gay male sex in general. It was against being the recipient, being the bottom in a gay male sexual relationship. The top is okay. It's the bottom who's problematic. It's lying like a woman. That's the misogyny that is grounded in that that law that says you cannot do this. So that goes back probably at least 3,000 years, if not Four or five into Mesopotamia. And women were not a part of that conversation in Jewish law or in Christian law, I believe, until, well, I think the 12th or the 13th century, when a couple of rabbis got together. Somebody asked the question, well, you know, if two men can't have sex, can two women have sex? And it was an intellectual argument. And they go, well, I sort of guess not. I guess we got to throw women in. We don't consider them much in anything anyway, but we might as well you know, prevent them from doing that too. But it was a rabbinical sort of secondary, tertiary thought that let's just cut women out. And you see this even today where lots of guys will say, oh I two women together, let's do a, a threesome and menage a trois, and all of that stuff. They're happy to see two women being sexual together. They don't like two women getting married because then they think, oh well, why are you reducing the pool for men? But That's not really serious. That's not where the culture has gone over millennia to say what people don't like is gay male sex. So, overcoming that was the real challenge. And look, this is why we had Don't Ask, Don't Tell. I mean, Barney Frank used to talk about it all the time about this fear that you'd be in a shower with another guy. And if he's gay, he's going to rape you in the shower, that kind of thing. If you're stuck on a submarine and you have to take a shower with a gay guy and he's, you know, he's going to assault you. And this goes, this has then led to the whole bathroom bill, you know, mania that, oh, my God, if you let a trans woman in, she's really a man. She's going to assault your wife or your daughter or what have you. People don't know people again are very skittish about sexuality in general and it's easy to get them worked up about these things but it is remarkable how comfortable america has got with gay male couples over the last i would say 20 30 years and it's you know it's rather stunning i think the epidemic had something to do with that people who initially you know said well they're getting what they deserve recognized the the pain and the misery and the loss in so many families that they got over that aspect of it and were able to be a little bit more empathetic and that that changed the general impression in this country.
1: Yeah, so um, I think some events that I remember you saying were like Frank Kameny, if I'm pronouncing his name right. Right, Kameny, K-A-M-E-N-Y. And um, Stonewall, which you also mentioned. Right. Um, what, what are some changes in the community, policy and advocacy, have you seen over the course of
2: your life? Well, I mean, I mean a, a lot of things. Look, back when I was a kid, being gay was something you were, but you had to hide it. Same thing for being trans, and people didn't understand that. Many trans people were sort of gayish back in school in those days because nobody, even they didn't understand what being trans was about. So there were no laws dealing with with gay or trans people. And every law that, every court case that has occurred over the past 50-some-odd years has been a result of people coming out. When I was a kid growing up, I had a my parents, my father's best friend from high school, we used to hang around with them, and his son was gay. It was pretty obvious, even in the 60s, that he was gay. He was a Paul Lynn kind of gay guy. And people used to say, well, he's a little light in the loafers. That was the phrase that was used. But nobody talked about it. Uh, He wasn't punished for it. Uh, Occasionally, strangers would shame him for it. He was beaten up in school occasionally for being too feminine. But nobody talked about that. And it it took Stonewall for an uprising for people to say, you know, we're not going to hide in the basements, in the bars, you know, in the dark anymore. We're going to come out and be ourselves. Frank Kameny was one person. He got a couple of dozen to, to march with him throughout the 60s. But Stonewall was an uprising. It was an explosion of, we're not going to take this anymore. There had been examples of trans people fighting back in uh, in San Francisco in 1966 and in Philadelphia in, in the early 60s. But these were just one-offs. They happened. They barely made the news. We know about them now because people have filled in the history, but they didn't have any traction. Stonewall was what cause, put sort of gay people on the map to the point where, you know, Obama in his speeches would say, you know, from Seneca Falls to Selma to Stonewall. It's alliterative. They're all S words. But Stonewall is seen as the the beginning of the gay rights movement, because it was an event which gained notice. Interestingly, so it happened on a Friday night the New York Times and the Herald Tribune and such, the New York newspapers didn't notice it. They didn't cover it until Monday morning. So there was the uprising Friday night. There was the uprising on Saturday night where I was present. The papers didn't cover it. The the TV didn't cover it at all. The papers didn't cover it until Monday. So when I was taking my girlfriend to the Village Vanguard on Saturday night, I had no idea that there had been an uprising and people still call it a riot. It wasn't much of a riot, but it was, it was, there was chaos in the streets, bottles thrown and fires in garbage cans and a lot of yelling and screaming and hooting and all of that. We didn't know that that had gone on the night before or was going on that night because the media didn't cover it. It was that kind of, we can't talk about this stuff. What Stonewall did is it forced it into conversation. The group P flag, which has been supporting the parents and friends of lesbians, gays, and now trans people for the last, what is it, 48 years, was formed in 1972 because Stonewall led to the first Pride demonstration a year later, and those have continued ever since. So gay men, generally, at the beginning, forced their way into public discourse. And as a result evolution could happen. There was a place to go. There was a place to meet where you didn't have to feel ashamed and in hiding and afraid the police were going to come to you. People met and they sat and they figured how politically, how can we do this? We demonstrate, can we get anybody into city hall, et cetera. And this started happening all around the country. And No, no, 50 years later, here we are. The first national trans organization was Transsexual Menace, which began in 94. My friend Ricky Wilchens created that in 94, thereabouts. The National Trans Advocacy uh, group, NTAC, uh, came into existence in 97. NCTE, the National Center for Trans Equality, was founded in 2003, and I was on the board of that for six years. So, I mean... There were times when there were very few of us that were out there. We felt very, very lonely, but there was also something very exciting about being alone and just being a few people. You could accomplish a lot more. There weren't you didn't have to sit around and take you know votes and do this electronically because there were hundreds or thousands of people that needed to to wait in and stuff. If you had the guts to come out and to fight on this stuff and to be out in public then you know you could play a role in helping direct the movement forward and it, those were heady times today it's sort of kind of boring in a way because you know you come out and there're a whole bunch of other people who have come out and you can have friends i remember when gay straight alliances which is what you know you guys are in now except it's no longer called that it's, the letters were switched around were a real thing having a safe space like that in a school was novel. It was exceptional. It was, you had to fight for it. You had to defend it. Things like that. Today, there are no brainers except in certain parts of the South and the Midwest. So a lot has changed. The culture changed. The culture changed the law. The law changed the culture. I mean, this is the way that's, I'm speaking of a dialectic, this is how American society evolves. And you can look at this at civil rights you know Jackie Robinson breaking into baseball led to Brown v. Board of Education, which led to Little Rock, and, and then led to the Civil Rights Act of 1957, which then led to the Freedom Marches of 1960 and the lunch counter the sit-ins in the early 60s, which then led to, to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and then the March over the, the Edmund Pettus Bridge in 65 in Selma led to the Voting Rights Act. All of these things play in together. You can't just pass laws. Nobody cares. You don't pass a law for nothing, just for the hell of it. You pass a law because there's pressure from below. This law is needed. And until gay people came out, there was no need for any laws dealing with gay people. So people just let the community and the community values, the community standards, the moral standards of the religious communities control them, which is why it's important for LGBT people to come out in their religious communities, too, because that's the root of much of the oppression that people still suffer. So if you really want to change the world, you got to come out in your church or your synagogue or your mosque or or your temple or what have you. That's where you've got to change people's hearts and minds. You would think that would be the easiest place because religious people are supposed to be loving and empathetic and stuff, but it often turns out to be the hardest place. But you've got to do that too. I had to do that in my my synagogue community and in the Jewish community. And uh, I still work. I'm on boards of LGBT Jewish organizations, Keshet, the Wider Bridge and such, because it's, still imp- it's important to do that. That's how you can persuade others who are more religious, more fundamentalist, to open their minds up, to read the scriptures a little bit differently because they've been misreading them in the past. And the culture then from outside comes in and impacts them and they start to see things a little bit differently. And as long as you don't come out and just say, hey, you know, you've got to do it my way. You're a bigot and you better get this right. Then you can work your way through. It may take years. It could take decades. I think I mentioned the other day on Monday you know Bayard Rustin, who was Dr. King's uh, coordinator, his demonstration and march coordinator and such, said that you know 20% of the people will never listen to you, and 20% are ready or on your side. You go for the movable middle. I don't think it's 60% these days. Certainly on race, it seems to be 40% are incorrigible, and the other 60% are okay and need and are awake now and are going to be more engaged and such. On LGBT issues, you know, the polling was always the last 10, 15 years that 75% of people thought discrimination against gay people was illegal and shouldn't exist. They thought there were already laws in place. It was actually very striking. They go, what, you can't discriminate against somebody for being gay? Isn't there a law against that? Well, no, we only we only got a law against it, basically, with the Supreme Court ruling in this past July. But people thought that. And then when we'd ask about trans people, same thing, 70 to 80% of people that you shouldn't be able to discriminate against trans people. That doesn't stop people from discriminating because people are still uncomfortable. They're, they don't understand. They're afraid of what somebody else is going to say. And this is something else that's important to note, that when people are, are skittish about something, it's not necessarily that they are skittish. It's that they are afraid of what their neighbors are going to say. When I finally completed my transition and came down to visit my parents, they were more concerned with what the neighbors on their floor of their retirement community in Florida were going to think than how they felt about me at that, by that point. And this is, peer group pressure is extremely intense. And you're often, when it comes to whether it's intimate relationships or just, you know, community uh, engagement and such, it's often people have this sense, and I've seen this looking for political endorsements, you can win over individuals, that's relatively easy. But when a group of people gets together, they become much more conservative. They go, well... If we do this, what are our friends and family and those other groups going to think about us here? If we go out on a limb, we're going to sort of force them into an uncomfortable position and then they're not going to like us. And, you know, we'd be better off not rocking the boat. So you have these different layers of acceptance that you have to get to. And it takes a very, very long time to do that. And people will come up to you and say, you know, I have no problem with you at all. And, you know, you might be cynical and say, yeah, really? But, you know, oftentimes that's the case. But they go, well, you know, but that person sitting over there and that one over there, they're a little skittish and we're not going to take the risk of coming out and endorsing you for this because then everybody's going to start noticing us. Mm-hmm. I noticed this when I first started my local advocacy with, with the Montgomery County School Board on sexual orientation education in 2003, And the superintendent was extremely skittish. He was afraid that if we came out and did this and put sexual orientation in the curriculum and spoke positively about, you know, gay kids, that the right wing would come back and sue and they'd be mired in legal disputes forever. Well, you know, that happened anyway. It was inevitable. As again, I say, you know, this is you've got this clash between quote unquote religious freedom and, and the equality and such, so it's going to happen. There's no point in running from it. But he was really resistant to it for years because he didn't want to rock the boat and engender lawsuits against him. Oh, we don't we have we have to educate kids. We've got all these important things to do. We can't worry about this. This isn't a big enough problem. And we made it a big enough problem for him because it was a problem for us. We wanted this to change. And I remember I was the only trans person doing this stuff at the time, and I would try to squeeze trans stuff into this. Originally, I couldn't do it because everybody else there was only interested in the gay part of it. But with time and as a result of a lawsuit, we had to redo it. Then I was able to push that through and say, look, if you're doing this over again, you might as well get it right. So include issues of gender identity in with the sexual orientation. And we did it. And it's been great for the last, uh, I guess, 14 years now. But as John Lewis used to say, you need to make good trouble. You got to get out there and shake things up and you have to be willing to pay the price. And some people have died in fighting for civil rights and others have lost their jobs and have been excommunicated by, ostracized by their families and such. You know, sometimes the price is very high, but if you're not willing to fight, you know, as Frederick Douglass said, you know, power never cedes itself to anybody. They will only respond to a fight, to somebody else taking that power from them. And that's true. That's just the way it is. got to be willing to be out there and to say, here I am. This is what I'm going to do. I'll meet you halfway, but I'm not going away. You know, that old phrase, we're here, we're queer, you know, get used to it. That's uh, that was one of the first times, actually, you mentioned, uh, you're talking about LGBTQ, the Q was appended in the past couple of years, but queer was an epithet that was used against a lot of gay men of my generation, and they hate it. They still hate it to this day. But back in the aughts, I guess, when a lot of demonstrations were happening, that, that phrase sort of came out, we're here, we're queer, get used to it. And I guess people have gotten used to it over the past decade, so now the word has been drained of it's uh, a lot of its virulence.
0: I think people uh, own the word instead of, um, you know, that, that, that people kind of fit in with a queer identity more than uh, that they do. Like, Oh, I don't identify as gay, or I'm not trans or I'm not non-binary, but I'm part of this community, you know? Um, So I think it's kind of a, a term that people have embraced to kind of encompass Um, as you were mentioning before, kind of like these, you know, you can have a different gender identity than you do sexual orientation and, you know, different things. So it kind of encompasses a lot more.
2: Yeah, it's an umbrella kind of term. Although I, I, it's interesting because it's complicated and there have been studies on this. There are people who simply identify as queer. As of the last study that I read, that's 6% of the entire community. Yeah. I think that sort of fits in, Danielle, with exactly what you're saying. These are people who don't want to go down and take one of those letters and append it, you know, attach it to them, to their forehead, so to speak, the scarlet letter or whatever. And they just want to be queer, which means I'm just sort of a little weird. And I'm not like you. And so I'm going to be different. But that there's also the big Q, the capital Q which is sort of an umbrella to an attempt to bring gay and trans and everybody else together instead of extending the alphabet soup, which has become a bit of a joke. LGBTQIA QQIA, two-spirit, whatever and stuff. That is ridiculous. It's completely unmanageable. So Q means both the umbrella term for anybody who's not cis, straight, etc., versus somebody who really just wants that as a new type of identity. It's hard to get there. And a, an important point to recognize within the community is, and I pointed this out just a few minutes ago, there are a lot of men, particularly of my age and a little bit older, who can't stand that. And well,
0: it was because probably it was used as more of a derogatory term. Yeah, oh, it was.
2: They were kicked in the head and beaten to a pulp, right. all being called queer and fag and all of that. And, but my point is, I think we need to be empathetic and to be respectful of them in the way we use it at times. So I have learned that depending where I write, depending on the audience, you know, if you're in politics, you get pretty good at this. Depending on your audience, you can use certain words. And I've learned to be respectful of that. One thing that I found very interesting was the term cis, which I've long thought I coined back in 2003, couple of other people have claimed they did it in the same year so okay so maybe a bunch of us did it it turns out actually that the word cis cissexual, cisgender was actually coined in 1914 by a german pathologist so you know maybe we reintroduced the word to the language now that it became relevant because i was simply looking for a word that was not trans, instead of saying, well, the non-trans population here versus the trans population, which sounded kind of silly because the trans population at that time was 0.3% and the rest of everybody was 99.7% and it was silly to call them non-something. So as an organic chemist, I went, well, trans, cis, so let's just go with cis. You know, anybody who knows basic Latin could figure that out and it'll work. But I have some gay male friends who hate that cis. Why? Why? because it reminds them of being called sissy when they were a kid. Now, it's not spelled the same way. It's certainly not used at all in that kind of context where you could imagine that somebody's calling you sissy. But, you know, all this trigger warning stuff that people have have talked about for a while, these guys get triggered by the word Mm siss. It's not rational. It's completely irrational. Mm -hmm. So, again, if I know that I'm talking to them, I don't say cis. I say non-trans. I'm just. I want to keep the conversation going, so I'm not trying to shut it down. It's like saying, "Oh, you're a racist." You know, maybe that person really is, and you need to say that. But oftentimes, that person may not be, or not aware of it, or what have you. So you don't just come out and say, "No, you're a racist," or "You cis." You know, there's there's a group of queer people that have demonstrated, and that there were a bunch out at Stonewall for the fiftieth anniversary last year. There were two parades. There was the main one that had 5 million people in it that took like 11 hours to walk down Fifth Avenue and stuff because there were 5 million people. And then the next day, there was one with 150,000 people on Eighth Avenue, which was the Queer Liberation Front. Mm-hmm. Sort of like, you know, going back to the Vietnam War days and stuff like that. And there were banners that out there that that said, Die, Cis, Scum. Oh, so, you know, some people, particularly kids, and you know, I was like that back in the 60s, too. We were trying not to go to war, and there were a whole bunch of issues. And so we would say some nasty things and, you know, give me an F, give me a U, give me whatever. And so now, these days, you've got trans people out there who're saying, die, cis scum. That doesn't help when I'm trying to communicate with people. And I say, well, you know, cis people do this. Oh well, no, that's an epithet. That's derogatory. That's like calling... Straight people breeders, right? You've probably heard that as being problematic, and so there, there are people in these in our various communities that will too easily use some of these terms. We're trying to get accepted into the mainstream in a derogatory manner, and that shuts down discussion. So that can be problematic. So I'm, all I'm saying is be aware of that, mm-hmm. and it doesn't help. To try to, you know, when you're trying to get your rights and to be accepted and to get a job and whatever, to go out and say, oh, if you don't want to accept me, then die, cis scum, that kind of thing. That's all right. But, you know, the interesting thing is that there are so many trans people now that something like that's inevitable to happen. When there were 30 of us on the mall celebrating Trans Day of Remembrance, that was uh, very unlikely to happen. Today, when there are thousands of people in a rally, it's bound to happen. And we have to adapt to that. But I'm just saying, as thoughtful people, you guys can think about that. And if somebody says something, call them out on it, because it does offend various groups of folks whom you're really trying to win over. So right. it's, you're cutting off your nose, right, despite your face.
1: And
0: I think I also think in the um, kind of like the next generation, too, that they've adopted the queer terminology as opposed to um because they're more fluid they're a little more fluid so they may you know be still exploring their sexuality and they're not really exactly what which term that they would use to describe themselves so you know they kind of use queer as the umbrella term for you know um you know like well last year i came out as bi but now i really realize that i'm um you know a lesbian or you know what i mean like they definitely
2: yeah it's easier you don't have to go quite into uh you don't have to box yourself in, so to speak, when you're not really feeling comfortable. And it gives you that freedom of movement, I guess, in a way that uh, we didn't really have. We had to figure this out so we could educate people so that they would understand it. Today, a lot of this fluidity, is a, it's a very political kind of situation. It's not biological and it complicates narratives. And that's why I think, We have the growing problem with the uh, we call the gender crits in the UK, people we call TERFs here, the trans-exclusionary radical feminists, though I don't think it's fair to call them feminists, but they are focusing on the difference between sex and gender. And part of the problem we have in this country today is people who want to either completely conflate them, they're conflated in federal law, which is why we, we've used them interchangeably, but they want to conflate them in reality, and that leads to breakdowns in communication and such, and it's gotten much worse in, in Britain. Britain had a movement to modernize their Gender Recognition Act from 2004, and it failed on that issue, and I'm sure you're aware, this part. Of, this is where J.K. Rawlings has gotten involved in this and such, and you know, when you have somebody like that getting involved, it's not hard to sway politicians to go in one direction versus the other. And I think we need to work that out going forward. We'll see where we go with that, but that's something that's on the horizon here. And we win next week and we win big. I think we'll be fine. We'll be able to work this through. We'll get the Equality Act passed next year. And then that'll just be something else that we're going to fight about with, you know, religious fundamentalists. But, you know, it'll make the lives of others much easier. They'll have federal law to back them up now rather than just Supreme Court decisions, and appeals court decisions. So this is the progress that we've made. And it's absolutely remarkable, particularly in the context of, you know, the the 400 years of, of racial antagonism that's gone so slowly and the sexism and all that stuff, it's remarkable what the LGBTQ community has managed to pull off in such a short period of time. Mm-hmm. I'm just glad I've lived long enough that I could experience it throughout my lifetime. Yeah, it is,
0: it is pretty amazing.
1: Um- yeah. I remember you saying something about the transen- um, transsexual organization in 1984. We have our, um, I know that you founded uh, Gender Rights Maryland
2: um,
1: in, it's been almost, I think it's been nine years, hasn't it?
2: Right, yes. My colleague, Sharon Brackett, and I founded Gender Rights Maryland in 2011. That, as I mentioned on Monday, was a sort of a reaction to the fact that Equality Maryland, which had gone through some difficult times for personnel reasons, was focusing heavily on marriage equality, because that's just where the country was going. And as a result, the trans part of equality sort of got kicked aside. And we decided, you know, we've matured enough. We, we know how to do this. So why don't we just start our own organization? And so, yeah, we started that in, in 2011. And... Uh, and I had experience with NCTE, the National Center for Trans Equality, since its founding. And at that point in 2011, I just figured, you know, it, it's time. We, we, we're we mature enough that we can come out in our own organization and do this. So we did it.
1: Um, so my question is, what has been some of the, your proudest professional accomplishments um, since you founded Gender Rights Maryland?
2: Well, as I discussed in great detail on Monday, we set out, we had a goal, a single goal in mind, just the way Freedom to Marry had the goal of gaining marriage equality, and that's all. They weren't interested in uh, anti discrimination laws for employment or housing or public accommodations or anything like that. Their goal was focused marriage equality, same sex marriage. Our goal was passing anti-discrimination laws for trans people in Maryland because they did not exist anywhere at that time other than in Baltimore City. The state anti-discrimination law that was passed in 2001 did not include trans people. And it was explicitly about sexual orientation, so it didn't have the because of sex phrase that we could have argued included trans people, which is why trans people are now covered nationwide under the Bostock decision of the Supreme Court in July. So we had to go ahead and create laws that were deliberately, explicitly about gender identity. And we did it. And we fought for the state law in 2011, which is how Gender Rights Maryland sort of formed up. We we weren't quite Organized at that point yet. We didn't have a C4 and a C3. We we were just a bunch of people that became that organization in 2011. But as soon as we did that, we decided to do what the tried and true method was, which was to pass county laws. I had led the campaign in 2007 in Montgomery County. So by 2011, we had Baltimore City in Montgomery County. And then we decided, okay, we'll go to Howard County next. That's you guys. And then Three months later, we went to Baltimore County and we got that. So by spring of 2012, we had 47% of the state covered under county and city laws. And at that point, we figured it would be much easier to convince the state legislature to just sort of extend it to everybody else. And we were right. So 2012 was the year that marriage equality came to Maryland. It passed in the House and the Senate. It was signed by Governor O'Malley in 2012. It went to referendum. That was the deal that was made in order to get it passed. And then that November of 2012, when Obama was reelected, it passed 52 to 48 in Maryland. And that was it. So marriage equality was done. The gay community didn't have anything more to do. And so they basically packed their bags and left. And that left us, the Gender Rights Maryland, to lead the fight to get a gender identity bill. And we did, you know, for the most part, we had gay support and such. But again, the movement had been focused on marriage equality. They accomplished that. It The enthusiasm faded after that. We moved forward. Uh, there were internet sign battles in 2013, so we didn't get it done. But we worked on relationships with the Senate president, with the the Senate committee, the Senate Judicial Proceedings Committee, which we had been killed, the bill had been killed at for six, seven years before that. And in 2014, our time came, I made some deals with some legislators, and we got it done. And so now, you know, for the past six years, it's been on the books since October 1st of 2014. The whole, at this point, it's a matter, it's been a matter simply of educating people that that law is on the books and what does it mean? and how does it get implemented? And for the most part, I think it's gone pretty well as far as I can tell. And um, So yeah, that's you know, the organization sent out set out to do that. We accomplished our goals. and we only exist today in case somebody needs help in the implementation of that law in their particular circumstance. And as the years have gone by, there have been fewer and fewer people with complaints about that. So we succeeded. Just the way Freedom to Marry folded up shop, I suppose we will too at some point.
1: Yeah, um, I think my last question is, um, so I think the hardest thing for um, people in the LGBT community is coming out to either Friends or family. Yeah. Um, what is some advice that you would give them if they want to try and come out?
2: Well, you know, I've been around a while now. I have two sons in their 30s, I have two granddaughters. And what I tell them is that the thing, the, the most difficult thing I learned, the hardest thing to do as a human being is to trust. And if you're raised in a way where your trust is violated, it becomes all the more difficult. And I think that's what leads to the difficulty in coming out. But the flip side of that is keeping secrets is the most damaging thing you can do to yourself and to the people whom you love. So I've learned that no matter how frightening that secret is, no matter how scared you are of those visions you have of what's going to happen when the secret gets out that keeping that secret is far more damaging that things will not nearly be as bad as you imagine when you actually act on it that's not always true of course there are some circumstances and some families and some parts of this country where you could be killed for coming out i get that but I've seen this happen increasingly over the course of my lifetime, and it's why we have the rights we have today, because more and more people have come out. And we had to put up with nonsense like, oh, yeah, 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 I have a gay nephew. He's a really cool kid. The rest of you are perverts. We had to go through that phase, too. But as more and more people came out today, I think if the last survey I saw, it was years ago, something like 88% of Americans knew a gay person. The only way that's possible is if people came out as gay. When we formed Gender Rights Maryland, so in this past decade, that's the first survey we had in this decade was 8% of Americans knew a trans person. 8%! That's not a lot. That's 1 out of 12. When Caitlyn Jenner came out in 2015, that number soared. And I think it soared because a lot of people started coming out, figuring that, oh, if she could do that, and she's of my generation, and I can relate to her on some level. And so people saw that. That was national news. Then more and more came out. And the last study I saw, the last survey showed that 35% of Americans knew a trans person. So this is what it takes. It's the most difficult thing, as you mentioned, to do, but it's a lot scarier than the reality will will manifest, particularly today, because when I did it, they, I, my parents didn't know anybody. They had no idea. They thought I was mentally ill. They, that was the world in which I came out. Today, if somebody comes out as gay, it's like, yeah, okay, so what? And in so many places, again, not everywhere, but in so many places. and I. I've also learned, this may sound kind of strange. You know, you've probably heard that people fear failure, the fear of failure. You've heard that phrase? Yeah, I have. People all do things because they're afraid of failing. I don't think that's quite true. I think people are afraid of success. And I realized that when I was struggling to complete my transition, which I took very slowly because I had young children, and back in the day, back in the 90s, we didn't know how the transition of a parent would affect the kids. Most of the literature was very negative on it. Again, it was based on the, the perversion theory, the religiously tainted theories of what being trans was about before that. So we really didn't know. It turns out that kids are the easiest ones to be able to adapt to, to a transition. But we didn't know. it. So I took my time. But I remember becoming aware one day. I had this insight that, you know, I'm not afraid of failing. I've been failing at this now for nearly 50 years. I'm afraid of success. I'm afraid of what my life is going to be like when I pull this off. Because that's scary. That's a completely different way of living. It is scary. Do I have to engage with people? As a woman now, instead of as a man, which they're used to, I have to accept myself and be comfortable in my body and fix my body and do this, this and that. And it's like, that's so exciting, but that's really scary. You know, coming out as gay is a lot easier. You just say, hey, I'm gay, right? I mean, there's there's no medical, there's nothing involved in that. But, you know, the same kind of fear, you know, permeates people because we, we were part of communities. We're very social animals and we don't want to be rejected. And everybody's situation is different. And, you know, I always thought my father was going to have a harder time than my mother, but it turned out that no, he had a much easier time. And it's like, oftentimes you don't know until you ask what you're afraid to ask, because once you ask, once you come out, you can't put it back in the bottle. And it's, it's a difficult thing to do. I actually came out about a half dozen times before I completed my transition. And my parents just went in, back into complete denial after I came out, and they just simply ignored me. So I had a different experience with that. But again, it was during times when You didn't. Nobody really understood this. I didn't understand it. They didn't understand it, and it was easier to just sort of ignore it and pretend it didn't exist. So, yeah, it's hard, but it's worth it because living as your authentic self—and I know we use that term authenticity a lot—and all the rest—and it's it's important in politics too. But just be yourself. You know, you can accomplish a lot more. By being yourself and not fighting yourself, not hide. hiding takes a lot of energy. That closet gets to be very comfortable. You know, it's warm, it's dark. sort of like being in utero. It's you're just comfortable in there, sloshing around, and you don't want to make waves. You don't want to break out of it and then come out to that cold, difficult world where you have to move your lungs and breathe oxygen and you know and fight for your place in the world. It's it's scary, but it's a lot less, the reality is a lot less scary. And the damage that you do to yourself is much less when you finally find the courage to come out. And when you do it, you know, there's a way of doing it too. And there have been, during different eras, people have done it differently. I remember back in the day, there was uh, gay folks developed this routine back during, right after the AIDS epidemic, they began begun to, fade because of treatments, and they would come out to their parents, they would say, Mom, Dad, I've got something to tell you. I've got AIDS. Oh, my God, dear, come here. Let me, you know, a typical parent would care that their child was had a death sentence like that. And then they'd say, well, I'm also gay. And they go, well, you know, we got to get you medical care and everything like that. And after, you know, an hour or so, they go, by the way, I just want to tell you, I really don't have AIDS. Oh thank god you don't have aids oh okay so you're gay oh what the hell who cares at least you're not dying so again it's a matter of context and, and with my parents I I told them that I converted to catholicism and that I was trans And then when I told them I really hadn't converted to Catholicism, they were very relieved, and so the trans thing wasn't a big deal. And people came up, and that's a humorous, lighthearted way to come out and such. And you have to know your, your parents or your friends when you do that, and different people respond differently to things. Oftentimes, these days, people will say, duh, you know, yeah, I knew. Your siblings generally know. It's not a surprise to them and your parents are generally smart enough to be aware of it they may not have wanted to admit it or anything but they go yeah okay fine you know so i don't think it's nearly as hard as it used to be in some communities it's harder than in others certain ethnic communities racial communities maybe but you know still when you come out and say i'm gay it's not like those folks don't have a context in which to put that it's not like what's that right and even today You don't have that with trans people. Most people know what trans is, even if they've never met a trans person or don't know that they've met a trans person, even though they have met trans people. And, you know, it was funny back when we had our first hearing in uh, in Congress after Enda failed after, uh, because it was under the Bush administration and it wasn't going to happen anyway, uh, and trans people were left out of it. We put a lot of pressure on Barney Frank to, to do better by us. And the following year, we had our first subcommittee hearing on gender identity legislation. And Barney was speaking to the committee and he said to them, there were a bunch of us trans folks sitting in the audience. And uh, he was speaking to his colleagues and he said, I know you guys thought when I came out in 1988, I was really weird. That was 20 years ago. You thought gay was weird. But you've gotten to know me. We get along now. I may be weird for other reasons, but the fact that I'm gay is not what makes me weird. That was 20 years ago. He turns around and he looks at us and he goes, These people are all trans. They must seem very weird to you now, but you know, 20 years from now, they won't be that weird either. You can get over it. There's some very nice people here. It was a very effective way for him to approach that. A lot of my colleagues were really pissed off at him for calling us weird, but that's how he could relate to those folks, because he had had the experience of having to go through that, oh, you're weird kind of experience. I mean, that's what men in state legislatures and Congress and stuff had to do when women first started getting elected. Oh, this is weird. We need women's bathrooms. That's weird. We're going to have fewer bathrooms for ourselves. I don't like that. You know, people adapt to this stuff. And you've got to go out there and you've got to be part of that change. Uh And the more people who do that, the sooner progress comes. But we each have to go through that our own way with our own strengths. Uh, You know, a word that's become very important in the past 10, 15 years is resilience. You know, instead of just looking as a physician, as a scientist, uh, we always look at pathology. We learn about what's normal, what's functional by looking at the dysfunction, at the abnormalities. But we've learned to start looking at what's positive. So resilience has become a field of study because we want people to be resilient. Life is difficult. Everybody goes through tragedies and, and all sorts of pain and suffering, but you want people to be resilient to be able to get through that. And so we're learning more and more about resilience. And I, I like to think that one thing I taught my children was how to be resilient. They've survived my transition. They're doing pretty well. And I'm very proud of them for having the ability to do that. And that's what we sort of call resilience. And we need more of that. And we need to be able to teach that. And I don't know how you teach it at schools or anything. Parents should be able to do that, but sometimes they can't. If they're not resilient themselves. A lot of parents, you know, have suffered a great deal and and their kids suffer as a result of that. So, you know. These things are complicated, but there are a lot of ways to look at this. But I agree with you, the most, the most difficult thing is to come out, but it is also the most important thing. If people didn't start coming out in 69, we wouldn't be here today. Mm-hmm. There's no reason for it. I mean, I've seen this in legislatures all the time. You want us to pass a bill to do what? Where's the problem that this bill would fix? Well, it's not really a problem. It's one or two people, and maybe one day, 10 years from now, it's going to be a problem. Well, then don't bother me. There are enough things that I need to work on now that are problems. Mm-hmm. I had this problem. You were listening to that, that interview I did about endocrine disruptors. Uh, I think it was uh, at the time uh, BPA in bottles and on credit card receipts and stuff, which when pregnant women would you know drink that stuff or touch it, that would impact their fetus, and that fetus would then come out with intersects or with various other, you know, reproductive abnormalities. And yeah, let's prevent this. You know, here's a fun fact. If I want to scare you, Danielle, with COVID, (laughs) I did that on Monday. I'll scare you with this, but sperm counts are down 50% in the Northern Hemisphere over the past 50 years. That's a scary thing. There was a movie about that not that long ago, which was really scary. Children of men. There you go. Children of men. Right. And that's, that's pretty scary. But with 50% decrease in sperm counts, you'd think people would be up in arms, particularly men, right? I mean, they're trying to control women's reproductive capabilities, but here their own have been cut in half, and yet nobody wants to talk about it because it's so scary. And so I would hear, particularly from Republican senators in, in, in Annapolis, that, oh, don't bother me with this and everything. And I'm going, wait, this is going to affect your grandchildren. Why isn't that important to you? You know, you're eating those French fries. They're full of trans fats. That's going to kill you. Oh, doc, shut up. I already have a wife telling me this stuff. I don't need another woman telling me this too. This is the way people behave. Mm -hmm. That's just the way it is. And you just got to keep plotting and just keep at it. And eventually, you know, you succeed. Well, it's
0: interesting that you bring that back up because I was actually going to come back to that that conversation Um, because, you know, you shared from your own experience with being, transgender as a result of a drug that your mother took to prevent miscarriage now especially you know like our current day and age a lot of women are taking a lot of drugs for fertility issues and you know I feel like there's a lot of unknowns that we don't know about until like much later like you didn't discover you know this as a result of this drug until decades later Um, what are your thoughts? As a physician, like, what are your thoughts on, you know, the introduction of all these drugs that we're using um, for fertility and um, just treatment of general everyday illnesses?
2: Well, look, if Amy Coney Barrett has her way, there won't be any more fertility drugs. So that that problem will go away with that. So that won't be it won't be an issue. <laughs> Uh, I wish that was a joke. Oh, you know, no. We have to expand the courts. And stuff. Yeah. But no, that, that it's an interesting question. Uh, the stuff about endocrine disruption, I mean, we pour 10 million metric tons of chemicals into our environment every year. We understand less than 1% of those chemicals, what their impact is. The thing about endocrine disruption is, and here's a little science lesson, reproduction in animals has been conserved throughout evolution. So when we use herbicides and insecticides and all sorts of pesticides, they are all chemicals that are created to interfere with the reproductive cycles of those quote-unquote pests. But our reproductive system is very similar to those pests. Evolution has conserved it because it works really well. So when we pour those anti-reproduction chemicals in order to control our weeds and our lawn, we are, when that leaches into our water, we are then pouring those anti-reproduction chemicals into our system. And we only know what 1% of them do. I mean, Roundup is a good example. That's terrible as far as an endocrine disruptor goes. And yet people don't seem to care. Atrazine is another one, which is the most widely used pesticide in Maryland. And I have fought for that for years to ban that. And yet the farm lobby in Maryland doesn't give a damn. They don't care about their grandchildren or great-grandchildren, even though they are creating more and more sexual abnormalities in human development. Uh, it's, it's like it's very, very frustrating. And I have tried to get this story, my story about being intersex, out there. And I've had plenty of friends with media connections, and none of them want to talk about it. hmm they just don't want to talk about it. I mean, coming out as trans is was much easier than coming out as intersex. And so that, that's interesting. And again, I told you at the beginning that I wouldn't talk about the intersex thing because it just confuses the narrative. And it scares people off. Now, most trans people, by definition, biologically speaking, are intersex. Being trans means having the brain sex of one side and the general sex of the other. That's what being trans means. It's a little more complicated today when people are making political decisions and such about what their identities are and the identities multiply, but there's no biological basis for that yet anyway. So trans people are intersex, but it's complicated because there are a whole bunch of there are hundreds of different intersex conditions and that aren't trans related. And so this stuff gets very confusing and it's hard to teach this, certainly in the public and schools. It's hard enough to teach it, but medical schools, you know advanced science classes, it's hard enough to do it, but it's impossible just out in the public. So we don't talk about that, but it's a real problem and it's not going away. And all these LGBT rights and stuff, it's not changing the fact that we're still poisoning our environment, right? And it all gets back to global warming. Gay rights, trans rights, whatever, queer rights are not going to be a thing if we don't have a planet left upon which to live. Mm -hmm. So there are lots of things here that are much more complicated and require uh, a much greater effort. I'm glad to see Gen Z fighting for gun rights and global warming and stuff like that. There's got to be more. I think we're going to see it this coming year with Biden and such because he gets that. But, you know, this is a crisis Mm -hmm. and we have to deal with it. But it is fascinating that sperm counts are down so much and men don't seem to give a damn about it, which is sort of like, That's not what men usually care about, but I guess as long as you've got your Viagra or whatever, your Viagra, you know, uh, cogeners and stuff that do the same thing, you don't really care whether you're shooting bullets or not. Well, I think maybe you should for your future generations if you care about that. But I I have not succeeded in making that case.
0: Well, I will say, you know, I think that a lot of people are very unaware of... um, of their bodies and kind of and what your genetics kind of have been, uh, you know, passed on to you and kind of what that means. I mean, I'll be honest and say that, you know, in, in my family, we have um, all of the women in my family have passed on a, um, a trait for thalassemia minor. So oh. I didn't really know what it was, you know, as a kid. I mean, I just knew it was like a type of anemia, whatever. And then it wasn't until my wife and I went to have children and went to a fertility clinic, and they found out that I had thalassemia minor. They were very concerned about it, and I was like, "Well, what's the big deal? I don't understand." And they're like, "Well, you don't want to have a donor that has that trait because if you have two of those traits that meet, then you could get potentially have a you know um, a chance that you would have a child that has thalassemia major, which is a major issue." And, yeah. you know, is, is causes death. Um, and so, but had I not gone to a fertility clinic, I would have never known that. Like, that is not something that came up in discussion with my doctor ever in my lifetime. You know, that is not something that like my general physician talked to me about. That's not something that my GYN talked to me about, like nothing. Um, it mm-hmm. wasn't until I went to a fertility clinic and, you know, they're like, well, no, we don't want to, we are, you know, we need to see actual, you know, all of the, uh, the blood work from the donor and all of that and the uh, recovery, history yeah. to look at.
2: Yeah. So are the, you from, do you have Southern Mediterranean, Eastern sort of, uh, Levant? Orange? Uh,
0: it's, yeah, I guess it's like a Mediterranean stream, that re- Mediterranean strain, uh, thalassemia.
2: Um, yeah, that's where it's, it's very common. I mean, that's the kind of thing we learned in medical school, but again, you know, it has to come up. Well, here's an example of, So there, as I told you, there are hundreds of intersex conditions. One of the major ones is called androgen insensitivity syndrome. And these are XY individuals, Y chromosome. They have testes, but the testes don't descend. And because they're androgen insensitive, they don't have hormone receptors for androgens. They they produce testosterone, but their cells can't see it. Mm -hmm. They don't have the receptors. So the body this developing embryo and fetus doesn't masculinize. And anatomically, these people have a shortened vagina. It's about two-thirds normal length and no other reproductive organs. And everything else about them, their gender identity, which is their brain sex is female, and the rest of their body, because it doesn't see the testosterone, evolves, develops along the default path, which is female. So all of these girls come into their gynecologist. Their mothers bring them in because they're 11, 12, 13. They haven't begun menstruating. Mm -hmm. What's going on, right? Well, you go to the gynecologist from that. And then the gynecologist does the evaluation, finds that the vagina is a blind pouch. It doesn't lead to, there's no cervix there. And they pull out the sonography equipment, which is easy to do today, and find out that there's no uterus and there are no fallopian tubes and there's no ovary. And then stuck up in their inguinal canals, there are undescended testes. And then they do a karyotype and find out, oh, this kid is XY, who have always been female because they've always felt female. Their identity has always been female. There's never been any question in their mind that they're female. Their bodies have developed in a female manner. But certain right-wing fundamentalists would say, well, you are chromosomally male, and so you're male. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: There was an episode of House, I don't know if you ever saw that, Mm -mm. uh, where uh, House is sort of an obnoxious internist who solves all these bizarre medical mysteries. And he had a case like this, And this girl comes in and they couldn't figure it out. This was like 15 years ago. Maybe it was harder to figure out then. I don't think so, but whatever. And then at the end of the day, he goes, well, he he examines her and everything goes, oh, well, this is easy. You're just a boy. And he walks out and the parents are like, what? You know, there's no talk about it. There's no discussion. What does it mean? What are the implications? You know, and it's it's like, okay, there you go. Could you imagine being a 12-year-old girl? And your doctor yeah. comes in and says, by the way, you're really not a girl. You're really a boy.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's horrible. And you,
2: right. And you got screwed up uh, endocrinology going on within you and you're never going to have children and you've got a Y chromosome and just deal with it. Right. right. Well, you know, there's a, there's a famous woman who, who has this. She came out with it. And then she went back in the closet with the Jamie Lee Curtis. I don't know why she did that. It's been very disappointing to me for the last 30 years, but there you have it. And uh, yeah, these things happen all the time. It's not that uncommon. 2.2% of all live births are intersex in one form or another. So it's not like it's trans, which is 0.6%. It's 2.2%. But we don't talk about it because it freaks people out about that. Hmm. So the DES thing is an epigenetic. Issue. It's not genetic. It's epigenetic. Mm-hmm. It's about the epigenetics. Is about the uh, signaling system, the control system of DNA transcription and stuff. So there are ways the body controls which genes are turned on and when they're turned on and when they're turned, when they're turned off, etc. And it's that dance that happens throughout. Development, particularly in utero, that determines the kind of person you are, and DES impacts the methylation of certain genes, and therefore leads to female brain sex and male genitals and stuff. So, gosh,
0: you have like so much information. I could probably listen to you like all week talk about all this stuff. Um, what? So, what are you working on currently? And
2: uh, getting rid of the fascists and the Nazis from this country. Well, wow. Yeah, that that is a. Uh, yeah, because without that, none of the rest of this matters. I mean, let's it's face true, it. I mean, true. if we have a, you know, if we have the Russians running this country for another four years, the Supreme Court is going to rule against us on everything. Uh, you know, I don't think they're necessarily going to overturn marriage equality. Uh, or even Roe, per se, they'll just make it exceedingly difficult to get an abortion, that kind of stuff. Everything falls apart at this point. And, you know, I don't think LGBTQ people will have a life worth living under those circumstances. We'll all have to go underground again. So yeah, that's the only issue that really matters right now. And not only having a Democratic president, but getting a Democratic Senate with the Democratic House to be able to kill the filibuster, pass the legislation that we need to survive as a democratic republic and as a healthy planet. And, you know, to shore up NATO and to go back into the Paris Climate Accords and to, you know, come out with a new Voting Rights Act to reform criminal justice and, and, you know, emptying the prisons of everybody with, you know, drug offenses and stuff. We need to legalize marijuana. We need to be able to legalize hallucinogens, which is beginning to happen. There's actually in D.C. there is a referendum on the ballot about legalizing uh, plants for, you know, for medical purposes, medicinal purposes. And so. There are a lot of things that need to be done, but they're not going to get done if we live in a Nazi state. So that's what I'm doing.
0: Yeah. And just, um, you know, kind of going back to legalizing like hallucinogens and marijuana. um, I was actually educated by some um, high school students a number of years ago about legalization of marijuana and how. Um, it can't even undergo clinical trials um, just because of the fact that it's like a, a certain type of class, like it's on um, yeah.
2: it's a class one drug and you yeah. can't and as a result you can't look. The biggest problem now there are eleven states that have legalized marijuana, I believe. Eleven is the last I heard. they, they can't if you if you are a grower, a distributor, or a retail outlet you can't open a bank account because it's still a class one drug and the feds won't allow it. Mm-hmm. So,
0: Which is kind of, it's kind of crazy to me is that, that um, you know, you have this as a class one drug, you can't even uh, test it or, you know, see what kind of other benefits it would have when we have all of these harmful, harmful chemicals that we're pouring into the environment that we're then absorbing into our body that aren't even natural. Um, that are causing so many health issues, and that's okay.
2: Yeah, welcome to my life. I mean, that's what it's about, and it's very frustrating to have the background I have as a scientist and as a physician and have to deal with this, the blindness, the apathy, the denial that people are in about this stuff. My mother died five years ago, and after my father had died, she didn't want to live anymore, and so she wanted me to to kill her. And that's the only time she ever cursed at me. She said, why did I ever send you to medical school if you can't do this for me? And it just shows you how, how far gone she was and she starved herself to death. But I knew at that point, there were studies at Hopkins that were ongoing by using psilocybin, you know, the mushrooms for terminal anxiety. And it turns out that that stuff is great for people who've been given, you know, the prognosis that you've got six months to live. That's scary as hell. I'm not looking forward to that. But it turns out if one trip, that's all, one trip, one good LSD trip, and the fear, the anxiety fades away. Mm -hmm. And I so much wanted to get her into that study, I couldn't do it. This stuff's got to get out of studies. It's got to be legal. You know, the DEA has to approve this stuff so that people can take this. And the people I know who've done this – not from my generation from the 60s who went on a whole bunch of bad trips because all that stuff gets adulterated when it's illegal and people are out just trying to make money. But the good stuff say that they have been enlightened. They feel much better about being part of the world. They don't fear death and all the rest. And it's like, why would we want to deny ourselves that? Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we keep pouring 10 million metric tons of these toxins into the environment, and we're blind to that. hmm Yeah, it's a problem. But so if you're asking me what things are there left to work on, there are lots of things. But if we don't straighten this country out, none of that's going to be relevant. So yeah, that's the only thing that matters now. And I had mentioned earlier about people getting upset about microaggressions. And it's like, you know, guys, under this regime, microaggressions are irrelevant. We are being macroaggressed. And if we don't get rid of these people, none of that other stuff is going to matter. So focus on what's really important now and get out there and okay, Gabe, I presume you're too young to vote, but make sure that the people you know who might be a couple of years older than you, get out and vote. And granted, it's not that important, but you must know people in other states and stuff. This is not the time to stay on the sidelines. A hundred million people could have voted four years ago and didn't. A lot of people. Yeah, but you see now, apparently, like 30% of those people are voting now. Yeah, And one can only hope they're doing the right thing. But I think the point was made that just sitting it out and going, oh, they're both the same and it doesn't affect me, I'll vote for Jill Stein or I'll stay home. That doesn't work. You know, if you don't come out now and do this, you are responsible for ending the lives of many of the people you care about. And we've seen that with COVID, clearly, you know, people are actually dying because of the stupidity that's out there. And we cannot have leadership that's that stupid. We just can't afford to do it because there'll be another quarter million dead by February if that happens. It's going to be hard enough to fix it anyway without the foreign inauguration on January 20th. I don't know how that's going to happen. I know there are good people working on it, but, you know, we'll see.
0: Hmm. Yeah, Yeah. we'll see. But thank you so much, Dr. Bayer, for uh, joining us today and um, for sharing your thoughts and experience, wealth of experiences um, on all these various topics for today. So um, thank you so much. And um, we really appreciate having you on the podcast today.
2: Yeah, it's been a pleasure. It's been great to get to know you guys this week. Best of luck. And I hope you can actually get back to school in some reasonable time in the near
0: future. Me too. Yeah, same. The music featured at the start and end of our podcast is Work by Kevin MacLeod from Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 License.